George, thank you for spending a Sunday afternoon with me to talk about music. Of course. It's my pleasure. And a pleasure to meet you as well. Yeah, nice really time. nice to meet you too. Yeah. Thank you for coming to London. Well, no, well pleasure. It's all mine. So, um, you're a second year organ student. Yeah, that's at the right. Royal College of Music mm-hmm. in London. Fantastic institution. It is lovely. Yeah. Um, so, what's it like? Been, what's it been like so far? A bit of a rocky road with all of this pandemic stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been really exciting. Really good fun. I started in, God, it must be September 2019 now. And then we had six months, which were amazing. And then Corona happened. Um, For many, it was a bit of a sad time, but I quite enjoyed it. It gave me time to think, I think, because I think when you go to conservatoire, you're thrown in a little bit at the deep end. Yeah. Um, And it's quite a big shock coming from sixth form studies to basically becoming a performer straight away um and it's difficult to cope with that i think i'm sure you can relate to that has it affected your sort of motivation to practice and keep music going i think at first it was difficult because you have this issue at conservatoire especially of feeling like you're competing the whole time and when there's all these competitions inside of the uni and this sort of thing with internally with just the students inside it's difficult but there's not so much of that for the organ department which is fantastic and it's a very small department as well um and we have faculty classes where all six of us are together for a class um and you never feel like you're competing in that but you do as much as you try not to you're always comparing yourself and that sort of to an extent is good because it spurs you on but at some points it can sort of get a bit too much and you get the balance a bit wrong of comparison versus just being your own person and doing your own amount of work. But I think being in a place where you're surrounded by fellow musicians, that spurs you on to practice because you'll walk outside and hear Greek piano concerto being practiced in one room and you can hear it on the street opposite from the Albert Hall. And then you'll hear Rachmaninoff piano concerto number two going on. And it's just that sort of thing is the most inspiring thing I think you can have Mm. is hearing other people your age doing what they love and keeping you motivated the whole time. So I think that's really interesting. And not just um, fellow musicians, but also RCM is renowned for producing fantastic musicians. And you you have that sort of... Um, quality that spurs you on as well because you have to sort of maintain that yeah I mean that's good but on the same token it would be good if people told you more about how you're getting on right because I think there's this whole thing it's to do with this teacher student situation and lots of the teachers across the board in unis and conservatoires are that little bit older than the student or considerably older in some cases And the way of teaching in their day has completely shifted to what it is now. And students want a lot more, I think, in a conversation from their teacher. And they want to hear how they're doing and this sort of thing. But back in the day, I think it was just, you come in, you play, you have your lesson and you go. But now I think students want a bit more of a conversation about how they're doing, how they're progressing, where they want to be. 
I mean, me, myself, I would like that, but it's something I think has shifted from that time when our teachers were stu students to now, mm. but yeah, it's really, it's really good. And the level of musicianship in one building is quite incredible. Um, but it's so accepting of everyone. I mean, you turn up and take an entrance exam and they sent an email on the first week saying, it doesn't matter if you get zero, it's just a placement test. So that sort of acceptance is good. And you don't feel like academically, you don't feel like you're competing with anyone, which is nice. Right, right. What's your opinion on that shift in teacher-student relationship? What factor changed that throughout time? Is it technology? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I think how now we accept more things like mental health and this sort of thing, the, the way that has come up now has shifted what students want. Because mental health is such a big topic now, and especially now during the pandemic, it's really important that that student-teacher relationship is good and has solid foundations because it's so easy and i think also with social media it's difficult i mean i share a lot but countless times i've taken posts down or not shared in the end because there's so many people on social media a from your university b from people you want to network with and you're shy to put it out there because you don't know what people are going to say and think. You mean music-related posts? Yeah. When I put a video out, for example, of me playing something, I would say on average I ponder about it for 10 minutes before pressing share. Because people say, oh, yeah, just share everything. Share everything you're working on and this sort of thing. But if you've got, for example, an artist manager over there, the director of music from a cathedral over there looking on their phones, thinking about potential people in the future you don't want that content to be seen um but also the really interesting thing with social media is there's trends like 100 days of practice i'm sure you've seen that yeah um and that's really good and it gives young students an insight into the fact that not everything is perfect and i mean come on who's been to a concert and you've enjoyed it <laughs> when it's just perfect. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> do, you wanna, do you wanna just say that? Yeah, yeah. Do you want me to wait a second? Yeah, is that okay? Sorry. It's all right. Maybe start from the 100 days of practice point. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So the 100 days of practice is, as I'm sure you've seen, is really exciting because it shows people that not everything is perfect right from the beginning, even with the big names in the industry. Um, but, Shit, I forgot what I was going to say. Okay, it's okay. What was I saying? Uh, when you go to a concert, you'd realize... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Should I just start from yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. So when you go to a concert and everything's perfect, I personally like to hear a couple of wrong notes because it brings the performer down to a human level. I mean, if we were all churning out Rachmaninoff, Grieg, whatever, at 100% accuracy, where's the humanity in the music? You're just like a machine. And that's not what music is. 
music is human and it's the human playing it, performing it. And what is it without mistakes? Mm. It's boring. Yeah. It's my personal opinion on it. But I, I know I agree. It's when performances, say of Bach or, or Chopin, the Rachmaninoff, yeah. when the performer is too focused on perfection and getting everything right, yeah, getting the balancing right, getting the voicing right, I mean, you can get it right, but then it loses what you, what you just said, the humanity. Yeah. Where is it? And, and I agree that I, I think a good performance is when you risk going overboard, but still, still organized, but yeah. you're, you're tiltering between order and chaos. Taking risks is the most important thing. For sure. I think. Yeah. Um, and when you see someone taking risks, it makes the audience more excited as well. Yeah. Because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where it's going to go and you're sort of on the edge of your seat wondering. Mm. And also it makes you feel a bit nervous as well as the performer, as the audience, sorry. It makes you nervous. But I think it's really exciting when people take risks on stage. Yeah. And I think it's something that has sort of been shot down by a lot of people high up in the industry, as you're seeing. And one of the biggest issues is critics. Uh, Yuja Wang will always have a four-star review in the Observer, the Telegraph, whatever, because they're never going to give her five stars, even if it is top rate the whole time. Why do you think that is, in your opinion? It's a good question. Um, this barrier of four stars. Because it also becomes boring if you're constantly seeing five stars. And the thing with these newspapers is they need to be interesting. And if they're constantly saying, oh, everything's perfect, everything's great, everything's amazing, then they're not going to get people to read. Right. Um, so I think that's actually a, a point of journalism. It's capturing people in. Mm. And it's something that the music industry has to do as well, yeah. capture people in. You yeah. know. I think the problem is um, when, say, you read a Guardian review of a concert. Yeah. For example, I, I first saw a five-star review the first time in The Guardian, for me personally, of a piano concert. And I just thought, well, first of all, I want to know the credentials of the, the reviewer. Yeah. Are you a classical musician, musician uh, fan? Are you a musician? Yeah. You know, do you have any justification to, to judge these things? I want to know that. Otherwise, I won't read the review, even though even it's a five-star, if I don't know the credentials of no. the reviewer. But if it's, say, another pianist reviewing another pianist, that'd be quite interesting. Musicians on musicians. Yeah, it would be. But yeah. I think musicians wouldn't want to do that. Why is that? Because if you had Igor Levitt reviewing Yuja Wang and their best friends, mm -hmm. I don't think it would work. <laughs> there would be too much sort of angst about mm. saying something wrong right. and causing friction. But if they're good friends, then they can be honest. If they have that sort of good friendship. Backstage. Right. But not in the global eye. Right. I don't think. Right. Um, I think it's too risky. Right. I mean, I would love it. A bit of juiciness in these <laughs> reviews. But I don't think they would approve of it. Mm. But also, I don't think they really care. If you're a top performer, you don't care what the newspapers say. Mm. And I, I, you just are so focused on your own life that one review 
be it three star, four star, five star. You're not worried about that. Yeah. And it's so important that you don't read the reviews mm. because it can exactly. really muck with your head, I think. I think with Yu Wang, there's already an established like, reputation. Yeah, there is. The, I've never read one review of Yu without someone discussing what she's worn on stage. Yeah. And it's irrelevant. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like her unique selling point, but it doesn't need mentioning in a review. Mm. You know she's going to come out on a flamboyant outfit wearing heels. It doesn't need to be mentioned, mm. I don't think. Yeah, I, I'm interested to know what you think about that. But I, I've been pondering about this a lot, whether dress is an issue. Um because after all, you're going to watch a concert, yeah. not just listening to it. Precisely. Yeah. So sometimes I I personally think um, a person's dress sense can sort of distract slightly away from the music. Slightly. Yeah. Um, having said that, Yuji Wang plays brilliantly. I don't know anyone else who can play like her. So I think that gives her a bit of license to do what she likes. So she draws crowds in. She makes yeah, money for the concert halls and stuff. But this is this draws the point that people don't only go for the music. Hmm. They go to see the person on stage. Yeah. Um, and this is something I'm passionate about. I don't want to do the typical thing of turning up to a concert wearing a suit. Because why can't we perform in a t-shirt? Why can't we perform in the most flamboyantly made suit from Italy or whatever? And I think this whole sort of especially in the organist world of wearing a shirt and tie is really boring now because if you want to sell out a hall a church wherever you don't do it by looking at the program and deciding what music you're going to have maybe 70 percent but it's the person who will set it out um and i think that's so important people need to remember that people go to see you and what you do with the music because if you just play like everybody else no one's going to come mm. well you'll get the old the old folks that come every time the organ anoraks <laughs> as i like to call them but you won't get new people in you won't pull any younger generations in for sure and i think it's really important this whole point of just be yourself on stage wear what you want play how you want within boundaries but do it so that you're inspiring the new generation and not focusing so much on the current generation of listeners over the age of 60. There's so many things I want to unpack from what you just said. They're really interesting. So do you think fashion concert attire has become, well, should be part of our identity? We shouldn't really follow tradition of bow ties and we can just wear what we feel like. I don't think... Okay, let me let me go back a step and say there is a certain level of attire that should be worn on a stage. I mean, I wouldn't go on in tracksuit bottoms or whatever. Flip-flops, yeah. Yeah, flip-flop sliders, yeah. <laughs> but I think once once you're past that sort of that sort of boundary of what is acceptable and not on stage, you can do anything with it. But 
I don't think we focus too much on the people, on the person on stage and what they're wearing. And it's important, but it's also not, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think as long as they play good music, because that's what you're going to get. Yeah, that's what you're paying for. You're, you're paying for the music, and but you're also paying to see the person. But primarily, you're paying to go and see them perform the music of a composer. Yeah. And programming is very important, of course. But if I saw, just to take another example, if I saw Igor Levitt was at the Barbican, as soon as he, his name was on my phone or whatever, on my MacBook, I'd be booking a ticket. I wouldn't even look at the program. As soon as I see his name is on there, I would be in the Barbican Hall. And then if I saw the program, I might be a little disappointed. I might be extremely excited. But I don't think it would sway whether I would still enjoy attending the concert. Mm, mm. So it's the person that mm-hmm. draws you in. That's so true. I think in if if I was like that, I would choose Cho Song Jin, the South Korean um, Chopin International Prize mm-hmm. winner, 2015. He can play whatever. Just if his name is on the on the on the board yeah. outside the console, I will go and watch. Yeah. No matter what he plays. Yeah. He can play contemporary music for all I care. I would go watch. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's stage presence as well. Mm. If someone commands the stage whilst also commanding the orchestra and the and the sort of audience, then they've won. They've done everything they need to do. Mm. If they can then command the audience to enjoy a piece that they might not have liked they've won even more yeah if you see what i mean i see what you mean yeah so someone can play the most perfect rendition of a piece yeah if they have no concert presence it's dull it's dull to say the least Mm. yeah I, i i don't know what i would do i'd i think you would fall asleep yeah yeah you wouldn't go see them again no 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 and that's why it's important for young artists I, in my opinion not to fall into this trap of doing the same thing as the current generation of artists right you have to be unique to succeed mm. and that's yes you can spend 10 hours a day in a practice room practicing but why not spend six hours a day practicing or whatever five even and then spend the rest of your day networking looking at current artists and what they do and what you can do differently attending concerts and seeing what impact you can make on the future of performance Mm -hmm. and what you can bring in the future to concert halls and churches all venues festivals festivals have gone huge especially since the pandemic i mean you can the good thing about a classical music festival is that it's usually outside, which has made it much easier this year, especially. But festivals are always willing to look at younger artists because there's so much more opportunity. But I think that's the most important thing is to look at what's going on now and think to the future and work out what your mark is going to be and how you can change something. Because also, if you want the future of music to carry on past what I call the organ anoraks, 
you have to find a way of doing it yourself and making it interesting for younger generations. But it's a scary thought. Yeah. I do have slight fear about what the future is for classical music and the organ in particular. But as long as I know that I've done everything I can for it, then that fear is meaningless. Mm. We're moving along very smoothly, very nicely. Um, I'm just trying to think what's the best way to approach this. Okay. You've got a few concerts this year, is that correct? Or have they been cancelled? A couple have been cancelled. I'm so sorry. Um, I was meant to do one in Germany in July, but we've been put back onto their banned list. British citizens are not allowed in the country. Um, so that's been cancelled. But I have one coming up in October, mm. I believe the 31st. Mm. Halloween, isn't it? Yes. Um, here in London. So I'm currently thinking about that thinking ahead to that what's the program for that concert that's a very very interesting question and it's something i've been thinking about a lot um without giving too much away mm -hmm. i think it will mainly be i need to be careful because i haven't quite decided sure we don't have to i think no no i, I will definitely give you an answer because once I've given you an answer, it will definitely come to fruition. <laughs> um, it will be a concert mainly of transcriptions of orchestral works. Would this, would this be the first time you're programming transcriptions? Yes. Why transcriptions? And it's a little risky. Why transcriptions and why risky? Why transcriptions? Because they're mightily fun to play. And on, on what, what other instrument, apart from the organ, can you get all the different colors of an orchestra to be heard by an audience? Other than the organ, you can't do it on any other instrument, I don't think. I think the next closest would be piano, the next closest, but not as, not as effective as you Yeah, the thing think. is, if, if I was to do a transcription of Wagner, for example, I've got... To my, to my left of the organ, I've got a French horn. Mm. I've got a cor anglais. I've got whatever I need. A selection of flutes to my disposal. You can't do that on any other instrument. And the organ breathes because it uses wind and air. And no other instrument like it. Well, okay. Other instruments use air. But you don't have anything like the organ. You hold a note down on the organ and it can be endless. Unless you take your finger off. Is it is it powered by electric? Yeah, electricity. Electric, yeah. But then there's big sort of um, what they call blowers and air chambers. And then once you press a key, a sort of wooden plank lifts in the pipe and then the air can come through the pipe and that's what sounds a note and that's what i find so intriguing about the organ is i can hold a note down and i can hold it for as long as i like and that's the exciting thing and that's why it works so well with transcriptions right um 
but to go back to your question of risk transcriptions are difficult to pull off and that's something i'm very aware of and i will be very selective in my program of transcriptions that i think i can do justice to but i think also one thing that is quite exciting is the possibility of a transcription from a movie as an encore is that still a secret uh i will suggest something jurassic <laughs> based in a park <laughs> and i think that could be quite fun we'll see how the viewers get that yeah. <laughs> uh, what makes uh, an effective and convincing transcription performance you, you said it was it's hard to pull off and i kind of see where you're coming from but um, I'd like to explore that bit deeper, if, if that's possible. Yeah, of course. One is the player has to know the the orchestral piece off by heart. You need to know it. You need to have learnt it. You need to be able to visualize an orchestra playing it. You need to know which instrument has the line, the melody line or whatever. How deep and embedded is it in the rest of the orchestral sound? But then you need to also, the key thing with the organ is balance. And you need to work out what balances with what. And if you want, for example, the melody line on a French horn on the organ, you need to then work out, okay, so I've got the French horn, which is one stop. I need to find a good accompaniment to that somewhere else. And you have to make, one thing I always do is I take someone with me when I'm rehearsing. And I pop them at the back of the church. They loathe me for it, but I leave them at the back of the church. And I will constantly be shouting, how was that? Does that work? Does this balance? And that's why it's quite a difficult thing to pull off. So it wouldn't specify in a score, in a transcription, what the texture should be. You have to work it out on the like at the organ by yourself? Yeah. I mean, there might be suggestions, but it's my duty to go through because every organ's different you'll right. never find any organ the same and every sort of without boring you uh, no, i no, also no, no. no i also find it very tedious sometimes discussing this kind of thing but all organ builders have their own distinct sound right and that's one thing that's really important is getting to know the instrument yourself first and then getting to know it from an outside perspective and then working out what balances with what, which stops work with other stops and this sort of thing. Mm. There's, that's really interesting. I never knew that with the reorganizing of textures and instruments. That's the first time I heard. Yeah, I mean, often it, there will be suggestions, but you need to sort of take those suggestions and manipulate them mm. so for example for an exam i'm doing at uh, the college i'm playing a french piece by franck and i have to manipulate what he has written as suggestions onto an english sounding organ because there's all the different traditions you've got the english tradition of organs the french tradition the german tradition and it's the player's responsibility to work out which stops they should use 
to get it as close to the French sound as they can. Right. And that's the difficulty. And would it be a logical step to say that everyone has different um, interpretations of the textures when it comes to the same? Yeah. Um, I often disagree with my teacher on what sounds best. Right. And we will have a conversation and he will say, try this sound. And he will pull four stops out. And I will say, no, I don't like it. It doesn't work for me. Um, Whether he likes it or not, he goes with what I say. Because that's part of the learning experience. Mm. Um, That's the trickiest thing, I Mm. think. So I think from what you just said, being an organist is almost like being a conductor. You've got to study the score, the orchestral score pretty deeply. You need to know the music. Yeah. Um, And actually, I can't do it, but the best performers of transcriptions and organ play from memory. Um, I mean, it's not necessary, but the main thing is, for all instruments, I think, when you play from memory, you can hear what's going on around you and you're not focused on the music. I personally have no idea how to memorize music and I can't do it. Because when I get nervous, I need score in front of me. Mm. Take it away halfway through, fine. Um, but that's a whole different minefield altogether, memorizing music. <laughs> <laughs> Is it not a requirement at RCM to, to memorize music for exams? For pianists, yes. Just for pianists? Yeah. Right. But not for organists. Oh, that's, uh, that's lucky. Then. Yeah. Why did you decide to play organ? How did you get into it? what's the story it's a long one so when i was goodness nine years old i auditioned for st Albans cathedral choir um and that meant singing daily services in the cathedral six days a week um morning practices at seven fifteen till eight thirteen, and off to school and then back after school to sing the service on a Sunday, two services a day, Saturday, one service in the afternoon. Um, and then when you're around 13, 14, everybody knows that boys' voices break. And my voice broke a year earlier than everyone else's. And I had this sort of fascination that came from being in the choir, every day seeing that organ around hearing the sound of the organ accompaniment, hearing the voluntary at the end of a service. And I just became fascinated by it. And the story went that when I finished in the choir a year earlier than everyone else, I would go back as the organist page turner. Um, And that's what I did for a year. And I went on tour with the choir as the page turner. And the organist... I wasn't the most easy child to deal with, so I imagine I didn't give poor Tom Winpenny the most enjoyable experience <laughs> in Germany that year. But um, wow. I, I enjoyed it nonetheless. <laughs> what did you do that made it when it's so difficult? I just asked questions after question after question because I was so interested. Um, well, it was probably nice for him, actually, to know that someone was interested in what was going on. Um but that's besides the point. I mean, 
that's how it all started. And then I also took up organ lessons that year with Andrew Lucas, who was the director of music, um, and who's actually one of my biggest inspirations today, because mm. I've known him for so many years now. And he was the first ever person to give me an organ lesson in his house on his small real pipe organ which was given to him by his teacher Peter Herford who was also director of music in St Albans so it was all that sort of history that I loved um, and it's just inspiring being in a cathedral with a huge organ is inspiring and hearing it on a daily basis I mean how can one not fall in love with that I'm sure many people would disagree but I can't see it <laughs> Well, there may be surprising few numbers out there who yeah. agree with you. Yeah. Do you remember your first time playing an organ? The first time you touched it? That's a very good question. And played some notes. Is it quite a vivid memory? I think I can remember my first lesson. Whether that was the first time I ever touched an organ is a different question entirely. But I remember my first lesson and I was always very nervous when I was younger. And I remember being very nervous of Andrew, my teacher. And he knew I was always nervous and he, he would just say, come on, pull yourself together, man. <laughs> um, and I remember that first lesson and I, I, I used a book, obviously a tuition book. Um, and I just remember coming out being so inspired by it. And it was such a sort of thrilling experience to have Andrew, my this person that had been sort of a, sort of becomes a bit of a father figure when you see him six days a week in the cathedral. And then teaching me the organ was just incredible. Mm. And I, that first lesson, I think, was probably a major point in my organist life. Yeah. What's the one thing you remember most about what he said to you? Or the one thing he showed you that never left your mind on the organ? His words were, don't compare yourself to others. When I, my, I think my final lesson with him, he said to me, don't fall into the trap of worrying. I was always known as a warrior when I was one of his pupils. And he said to me, just don't worry so much. Get over this fear of being nervous. And I, I remember in my lessons, my hands would shake horribly. And he would see it. And he never really mentioned it. And then he told me, just don't compare yourself. Go in there, be strong. You know you've, you're worthy of it because you've got a place. And just keep your head down. And that's what I did. Hmm. It's amazing what music teachers, like instrumental teachers can be to us. As you said, father figure is a very good word. Yeah. Um, when I was studying piano at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, Professor James Kirby, you know, you, I, I didn't see him as much as you did. Your, to your teacher, yeah. six days a week, I saw him once a week, sometimes twice. But he was the most passionate and caring man that I've ever met in my life yeah and father figure yes that's a good word but also he didn't just teach me about music he taught me about music in the context of life 
Yeah. Including bits of philosophy and drawing social examples into the music that really strengthened the way I saw music itself and also how I lived as a person outside. Yeah. And almost like a life coach, almost. Not just a pianist, professional pianist and professional teacher, but a life coach. And I, I know that not everybody gets a teacher like this. Some people get really awful teachers. Yeah, you have um, to be lucky, I think. You have to be lucky, yeah. And I was very lucky to be partnered up with him. And I still remember what he said to me. Um, first week of having lessons, he said that my job here is not to teach you. Well, not just to teach you. My job here is to make myself redundant. <laughs> and I left that room after that lesson. I can imagine. I was like, what? You're a teacher. You're, you're, yeah. you're, it's your job to teach. You'd be not, a bit confused. Yeah, I was like, why are you making yourself, making yourself redundant? And then it left me confused because I was 18 when he said that to me. I wasn't very mature. Yeah. Or, or, or mature enough. And then it wasn't until I read Nietzsche, like a passage of Nietzsche that said... Um, one repays a teacher badly if one remains a student. And then when I read that, I thought, that's what he meant. Seven years seven years later, I finally knew what he meant. Those are the moments that form a musician, I think. Yeah. And that's why it's such a incredibly emotional industry. And... It's those years when you're 14 to 21, I think, mm -hmm. when the most impact happens. Yeah. It's so emotionally exciting, I think. Mm. But you do have to be lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I feel very, very appreciative yeah. of him. Yeah. Has music changed the way you see life? Music gives me life. Without music, life would be dull. Right. And this is the whole thing. Over the pandemic, when all of these things surfaced, like I remember there was that advert of that ballerina, Fatima. <laughs> oh, yeah. You remember that? I do remember that, yeah. Saying that this is her new career in cybersecurity or whatever. Yeah. And then all of these things came out... Um, on Twitter saying things like if you watch Netflix, if you watch now TV, if you watch uh, whatever streaming platform, you need artists. If you listen to Spotify on a daily basis, Apple music, you need artists. And I don't think I know anyone that doesn't listen to some form of music. Mm. Music is what keeps ticking. It's the only thing probably that is constantly going on. I mean, you can hear it out the window now. It's the one thing, one constant in people's lives. And it takes you through all different emotions from the darkest depths of wherever to the happiest times of your life. I mean, think about it. There's music at a funeral. There's music at a wedding. I think that perfectly shows how at every point of sadness or joy, music is there. Hmm. But for me, music keeps me going. If I'm if I'm having a rough day, I just whack on four A's Requiem. That gets me through. It's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the most 
gorgeous music you would ever hear, in my humble opinion. Um, but life without music would be incredibly, incredibly dull, I think. And that's what a lot of people forget. Yeah. So music always happens every day, no matter if you're playing the organ or not, you always listen to music every day. Yeah. I don't think I can say in the past six, seven, eight years, one day where I haven't heard, listened myself to a piece of music. And what I find most exciting is listening to new releases because that's so exciting. Every Friday when the new new releases Spotify playlist is out, I'm on there listening to new interpretations of Bach or whatever. But I can't think of one day where I haven't listened to music, hmm. which is quite scary as well. Yeah. Well now, well, now that you mention it, I don't think in the last... When did I start piano? I believe 11, 11 years old. 14 years, it's, there wasn't a day where I didn't listen to music. No. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It almost feels weird not doing it, not having music on. It does, yeah. Hmm. Um, I think every morning when I wake up and I have a coffee, I try and listen to something new. Hmm. And even if I despise it, I make myself listen to the whole thing. Because you can't be a musician and just be focused on one aspect of music. Right. I mean, you can be a musician, but you can't be a well-rounded one. If I just listened to Bach every day, I, I could. But <laughs> if I did, right. I would be an incredibly boring musician. And I think that's something that is so exciting, is new music new releases, new interpretations of old music. Mm -hmm. That is what makes me tick. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. Just put the mic, um, just turn it, put, just make sure it points to your, to your mouth. Yeah, perfect. Can't we'll just do it. Yeah. yeah, should be done. It's okay. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned um, new interpretations of old music. I recently read an essay by Alfred Brendel, the okay. Austrian pianist. He's not giving concerts anymore, which is very sad, I think. I think he's sort of receded into teaching and writing, yeah. uh, which is very sad. He wrote an essay on, on recitals and programs. Mm -hmm. And he said something that, that really intrigued me, but I don't remember him ever explaining it further so I'll, I'll recite what he said in the essay Please, he said yeah. that um you know modern musicians need to recontextualize old music into a modern world mm -hmm. and we shouldn't treat mozart bach beethoven chopin like and i quote titans in a museum to be preserved and to be fawned at as unchangeable pieces of art mm-hmm and that really intrigued me. And I thought, how do we how do we recontextualize our interpretations of modern mu of old music into the modern world? How do we do that? Yeah. Especially when, especially with classical music, you have musical direction, right? And you people have to follow, you know, the pianos, the fortes, the mezzo fortes, phrasings, um, 
articulation and if you sway too far away from the original intention you you'll get um criticized heavily yeah not just by your critics professional critics but but also your close musical musical circle you know why, why are you doing this you're not being faithful to the score that's the key word faithful yeah being faithful to the score there isn't when people use the word faithful it just reminds me of being really dogmatic to the score and following everything to the t and and it makes me think okay this is now a framework of of execution but because it's so narrow there's not much wiggle room to be original, to implant and to import our own identity, and thus making it extremely, extremely difficult to to forge our own way within yeah. this really narrow framework. I wondered what's your opinion on what I just said. Well, let me put it this way. This is why I love the organ. Right. And I will try and explain it a little bit as briefly and as concisely as possible. Yeah. So we use a term when playing the organ of registration, and that is the stops, so the sounds that one would use for a specific piece of music. And if I take the example of a Bach chorale with the melody in the right hand, accompaniment in the left, and the pedal, there is a sort of hereditary registration that you one would use now that has been used used as we believe since the days of Bach but why why do i have to do that why can't i use a registration that i think fits the music i can no one's going to stop me. I might be frowned upon for doing it. But why not? If I want to have an oboe, a court anglais, playing the melody line, no, can, no one can stop me. And this is where I think the sort of main point lies. Allow people to take these risks going back to risks again take these risks and do this sort of thing otherwise it's boring mm. I'm not saying that it's always boring I mean I love to hear a Bach chorale in the same registration that Bach would have used himself but you have to be free and open to new ideas mm. otherwise you're just sitting on a plateau the whole time yeah, yeah. of the same old thing Mm. I yeah I think conservatism in classical music is very boring but it doesn't go anywhere it doesn't change right and it is incredibly boring and tiresome especially when you hear the same thing done over and over again yeah um there's no personality there needs to be some individualism right? well yeah that's back to the point you need to have something you need a usp a unique selling point and so does your music making hmm. 
because unless you and your music making have a USP, it's not successful. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like um, when singers start to sing, the first word that comes out of the mouth, singers that can have an audience recognize that artist just from that one word. Yeah. I think you've found your USP. Yeah. That's very, that's very rare. It's crucial. Yeah. And that's one of the most amazing things, I think, when you hear a singer that you know and recognize from that one word. Yeah. They found it. Yeah. Go back to playing. I'm sure you heard the term color being used quite a lot. Tonal color. Yes. Um, What does that mean to you? What does color mean in the context of in music? See, I was thinking about this myself and I don't really think about color. I tend to imagine the music in my head. And color doesn't really play a huge part in my thinking. The color of the sounds, yes. So the color of a flute, the color of a flute on my right, compared to the color of the flute on my left. And which color merges well with the other stops that I have using. Mm. This is as an organist. Mm. But I think it's not overused, but we discuss it a little too much. Maybe. I don't know. What's your opinion on it? I'm a bit like you. I don't see color. No, I I also, I I can't see it one bit. I I just think it's a term that's been thrown around and people don't really know how to describe it. Think about, if if someone says to me, think about the colors of the organ, Mm. I think about the sounds. Yeah, the sounds. But what has that got to do with color? Yeah, exactly. Why use the word color? More like tom tombra is probably the most ac- accurate word. Yeah, closer to the real meaning. Yeah, I reckon so. I think it's bandied about a little too much. Mm. The word color. Yeah. Um. I also think it's a little bit childish. Right. The usage of the word color. Yeah, in music. I mean, the colors of the organ. I would still use, but to go and ask somebody, oh, what is, what color does this kind of present? Right, right, right. It's very difficult because I think this is the issue. Everybody has a different opinion on what the word color means in music. Mm. And I don't know. Maybe I'm an ignorant young man, but I don't know (laughs) what color would describe i just don't see it i don't have a brain that can see that sort of thing Mm, mm. but instead i can imagine i can hear what i want i don't see what i want i hear it yeah and because you know sound from the organ and the piano with no pianist and the organ organist we use a lot of our forearms and shoulders and backs to play right yeah 
and something I get a lot of issues with because I have no support on the ground. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's like, I think that's the big difference. Yeah, I think that's the big difference. That's why I envy pianists because they have something where they can ground themselves. Right. The floor. Right. Whereas with the organ, you're either tucking your feet below the bench or hovering them above the pedal board. Have you had any like physical pain from that or physical discomfort? I have lower back pain, but it's because I'm tall as well. Right. Um, and I know quite a few people that have got a lot of physical discomfort when they're tall, um, reaching over for keyboards. It sort of looked like the hunchback of Notre Dame or whatever. <laughs> In the church um, as well. <laughs> But I, it does cause, it causes me lower back pain, definitely. Right. Um, and it's just, you need a solid grounding. Um, but that's why, as an organist, it's sort of crucial that you have some mobility. Yes. Do you do any exercises to make sure you've got a strong lower back? Exercise? What's that? <laughs> um, no, not really. No, I try and touch my toes and fail every time. <laughs> but I think the main point is, is just keeping your body loose. Yeah. And you can do that by going for a five minute walk or whatever around the block. Right. Um, but we do Alex Tech, Alexander Technique in uni as well, which I'm not completely... Uh, one over. Yeah, I'm not completely one over by it, but I think it does help. Right, semi-supine. I end up sort of falling asleep for <laughs> half an hour. But apparently that's okay. I've been told that if you fall asleep, it's a good sign. Right, it's working. Yeah. Gotcha. And it, I, I do notice a difference. And I am just... By all faults of my own, don't have very good posture. Mm. Because I don't... God, I don't focus on it so much. Um but it is something that organists have to be aware of, especially is being mobile, moving around a lot and just being able to eradicate pain <laughs> if you get it. Yeah. Just going back to the physical point and, and Tombra or color, if you insist, if they insist, audiences. <laughs> um, because when we play, we have to listen to the sound we mix we make yeah. to make sure that we're producing a very pleasant sound, nothing too harsh, nothing too unmusical. But there's also the physical element that signifies to us whether we made a good sound or not. I'm not sure if this is a very personal thing for me, but I don't know about you, but I spend before performances, I spend about 10 minutes just sort of playing around with chords and voicings and mm -hmm. just to make sure my muscles are working okay. My voicings are okay. I'm uh, getting accustomed to the sound that the piano makes. Mm -hmm. And throughout experience, I've become very in tune with how my body performs when I make certain sounds or timbres or colors. Um, and sometimes I think if you take the sound away from the piano, if it's a muted piano, and if I play as if it's going to make a sound and I want to make a good sound, I can sometimes feel in my body that I made a good sound. Yeah. Because of the, mus the muscle activation in my forearms and shoulders. 
I can feel that if it wasn't muted, there would be a good sound coming out. Yeah. Is that something you experience as well? That you, you, there's something about the way your body is playing that if the organ was muted, you would know that you're making a good sound. I don't think it's such a big thing for the organ. Right. Because it's not like a piano in that however deeply you push a key, mm-hmm. that affects the sound. It's not like that on the organ. Right. And the sort of, the way of legato playing, Mm -hmm. that is something I recognize because it's all about sort of the tiniest bit of overlapping of the notes. So the airflow sort of mixes into both. And it's not like on a piano where you can just use a pedal, for example. So you have to really focus on that, but... I, if I'm playing a very tense passage, I know how my body will feel. I myself will probably be quite quite tense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that my jaw will be locked up. From the concentration. Yeah. But also because I feel myself in the music. Mm-hmm. So I f- if the music is tense, I begin to feel tense myself. And then I do what, my body naturally does when I'm tense but I don't think it's I it's not dissimilar and it's not similar <laughs> to the piano yes yes and how would you know you're making a good sound is there any physical any sort of physical signs the ears the ears just the ears just the ears right right and whether you get a clap at the end <laughs> <laughs> it's quite concerning when there's no clap yeah precisely very concerning do you play the piano a lot? Not as much as I should. Right. I kind of wish that it was like the good old days of the Royal College of Music where you had to take piano as a second study. Ah, uh, if you're an organist. Yeah, but that's not the case anymore. And um, I do wish I played more piano and I'm, I do get envious when I walk around the corridors of the college and listen to pianists playing. And I do think to myself, I should take it up again. But I know that lots of the finest organists in the world are also pianists. So it is definitely something on my radar to get back up to speed on. Mm. And I'm not fussed about being the best pianist in the world. I'm not fussed about that. But I would like... For myself, I would like to explore how the piano helps my organ playing. And that's something I'm really interested in exploring. I think it's the other way around. I think how your organ how your organ playing affects your piano playing. I think you'd be a really good pianist having played the organ. It would be interesting to see. Maybe we should test it out. Yes, we. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting because I think your legato playing would be superior to mine. I remember that I always loved the pedal and piano, and I was an overuser. <laughs> well, what did you like about? I'm not actually sure. The thing is, I kind of lose myself when I'm performing. So if you, if after a concert you ask me to think, oh, how were you during that piece? I wouldn't be able to tell you because I'm in my own world. And when I finish that piece, it takes me at least five seconds to come back down to earth. And I can't, after a concert, people who know me, I can't think straight because I'm still in a different world. 
And I remember there was one time and I think after a concert, one of the first ever organ concerts I did, and I didn't realize I had this sort of habit of losing myself whilst performing. And at the end, there was sort of a drinks reception and um, one of a family friend came up and said, oh, how is your mum at the moment? And I replied, uh, she's green. <laughs> what? And I was thinking about where I was in the music and I was still in that place. Right. And then she said, how are you feeling? Well, how is your mum? And I thought she said, how, how are you feeling? And I was still in this sort of place that was like a park or something, mm. completely green. Mm. And she asked me, are you okay? And I was like, I think so. <laughs> but I just remember that. And that is so, I find that so interesting, the link between the brain and music mm. and how different people's brains sort of manipulate and work to music. So when you perform, you think of images, you think of scenes. I don't actively think of them. My brain takes me there. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I don't always know where I've ended up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not uh, a deliberate thing. It's a thing that you succumb to when you yeah. play music. Right. That's interesting. I don't think I'm like that. I don't think many people are. No. Because every time I tell people this story, I get some very funny looks. <laughs> and it makes me very nervous. But... I also now have learned to enjoy that. It's almost like a it's like a drug that takes you to a different place. Right. Um but because it takes you to this other world and not at the present moment when you're performing. Yeah. Does that worry you that you're not paying attention to what's going on at that present moment with the music? No, because I'm still sort of there in the music. Right. Right. And don't get me wrong, if you tapped me on the shoulder halfway through and said, uh, you've missed a bit, then I would still be able to communicate with you. I, I'm not sort of hallucinogenic or whatever. Um, but I think it's just something really exciting for me because I'm always in a new place when I perform. Mm. And that's why it never gets boring as well. Yeah. Yes. Are there sort of sort of prescribed pieces to study at RCM? Are there things that you have to do as an organist? Well, there's um, for every instrument. There's a set list for your end of year exam. I think until your third and fourth year, where you just do a repertoire exam, um, and it's fairly well balanced of music from. For the organ department, it's from across Europe. So you've got English organ music, French and German, mm. basically. Mm. Um, and then one of your own choice, which can be pretty much anything. Um, but I don't think there should be prescribed music for you to... Why is that? <laughs> Generally, the music on the list is set by the head of department. So the head of department might be really into a area of music that doesn't really interest you. And of course, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it because it's important to have that in your repertoire. But there needs to be a sense of you are also a performer, you are also a musician here. Make your own choice of what you want to do. 
I think three set works is excessive. Maybe have two or one and then allow your student to choose. Right. But maybe I'm just being a typical student and <laughs> complaining. Rebelling against the, Precisely, the program. Yeah. Maybe if, it, if the boundaries were a bit vague, more vague, then yeah. more wiggle room to choose. Maybe yeah. not, too, um, not too narrow. Yeah. Well, for the potential organists or organist students who are uh, thinking about studying, would you mind sort of telling people what you're playing right now and what they should be preparing for institutions, musical institutions? So for my exam currently, which is in July, um, I'm studying two pieces of Bach. Um, I'm also studying a French piece by Franck and a piece of Liszt, which Ooh. is extremely exciting. awful to play but incredibly exciting <laughs> um and then on the side i think people write off transcriptions or they just don't realize that they exist so transcriptions are what i'm going to be working on uh over the summer and into the autumn and that excites me the thought of that makes me really excited so i'm looking forward to that but i think once you can never master Bach, for example. You're always learning new ways of performing, new ways of bringing out what Bach wanted and intended. But there are obviously certain parts of Bach's music that are important to study to get a grounding. For example, the chorales on the organ. Once you can play the Bach chorales properly, which won't come for years, then you can play anything. That's what my current teacher has told me. Mm. And that's, I also can believe that. Yes. It's useful advice. Hmm? Use, useful advice. Yeah, Very it is useful. useful. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice car. Oh. Whitney Houston. That's also on my set list. <laughs> and you fuck off. <laughs> I think I chose the wrong place to do a podcast. No, it's quite cool. It's like you never know what you're going to get. That's true. I'm sorry. I think they're at a stoplight. No, I think it's one of these people that picks people up and takes them on the back of a bike. Oh, those rickshaws. She's enjoying it. Just oh, yeah. <laughs> open the balcony. Shut the fuck up. Awesome, awesome. Okay, just the last two questions. You okay? Yeah. Yeah. So you're halfway through RCM. Yes. It's four years. What do you hope to achieve in the remaining two years of your time at a great institution as RCM? Naturally, I hope to come out 
with a solid grounding in performance of most but not all areas of organ repertoire and I hope that I'm not going to be pushed in a direction that I don't want to go in but what I hope to come out with most is a feeling that I've done myself justice with networking meeting people connecting with other musicians and breaking away from this idea that the organ community is inaccessible and a scary place to be we need to as an organ community there is a responsibility that young organists hold to break down the barriers for future generations to make the organ an instrument of its own to give it more of a status in the world of music and to not scare people away but entice them in and something I hope to have achieved is that by the end of my time at uni, these four years, that I will at least have one project on the go or have already done something towards that. What it is, I don't know yet. But I have a few ideas. Are you hoping to build your social media platform? For the organ yeah that's important but for me social media isn't the biggest thing i the biggest thing for me is being out in the world and giving a real life making the organ accessible in real life that's the thing for me hmm. and social media plays a part in that because people see what I do as an organist, but they only see a little bit of my life. And I want to go out into the world and actually bring the organ to people who wouldn't have had the opportunity to, opportunity to hear it. Mm. And that's something which I think is important, outreach. For sure. And I think you have a good chance because you're young. You're still relatively young. Yeah, um, and I think I think it's it's better than having a cliched old person spreading yes, awareness precisely. of an organ. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. No, no, there's nothing wrong with it at all. But I think it's more effective if a young person did it because you, I, you're the first person I met who played the organ, who's very young. Yeah, and that's why. People of my age have a responsibility. A big responsibility. A big one. And it's not our job to be ignorant of it and ignore what we have to do. It's a bit like being an activist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whether, it's a good way to put it. Good way to put it yeah. Whether you want to do it or not, you have a responsibility to be an activist for it. And it's all part of the instrument. But I won't take anybody telling me to be quiet and to be quiet. And they obviously want me to be quiet. I won't take anybody telling me to be quiet 
and to tone it down or whatever because I will keep saying things that are controversial until people realize that they need to change something themselves to make the organ accessible for the future generations. Well, George, thank you very much. Thank you very much.